Episode of Video Game Logic. Today's episode was recorded on June the 2nd, 2020. I'm your host, Gaming Psychologist, and with me, as always, I think my sad partner today. Caffeine Rage. On today's show, we will, of course, be discussing the games that we have played. 30 years later, a lost Days of Thunder NES game has been recovered from 21 floppy disks. Fallout 76 amounts to a major failure, according to the Australian government. Video games don't have to be educational to spark learning. And we will have a Steam Weekly Discovery queue. Timestamps will be in the show notes following their respective topics. Hello, Rage. Hello. The world is a sad place today, and we've just been talking about it, and we're sad and angsty, and we want to talk about fun stuff. Well, then, I guess we're skipping the games I played then. (laughs) Yeah. No. Go ahead and tell us about what you played, Rage. Uh, Okay, okay. Uh, because that's one hell of a segue, huh? So I played Minecraft Dungeons. This came out on Game Pass uh, this past week. And Game Pass, is, like I've said before, is a great way to try out something new that you're not sure about. And once again, I would not have paid any amount of money for this. So I came up with an analogy for this, all right? So this is sort of like playing a Lego uh, video game, only... You're looking for something, uh, you're looking for a more deeper experience, and you have absolutely zero fucks given about the IP that they're co- that they're using. Yeah, the Lego games are, have got very deep stuff in them. I mean, the gameplay is pretty oh, simple. I should, but... I should say the early Lego games. Okay. Right? It's like playing the early Lego games with an IP that you don't give a shit about. Gotcha. Because, okay, if you have interest in an ARPG and you've never played a single one, go play Path of Exile. Yep, I would agree. But if you must play this, all right, there's just, everything feels a little too watered down. Uh, Jim Sterling actually, I think, was very kind on this, where everything feels like it is functional but not fun so uh, the the biggest bugbear i think is the ai which he did cover a little bit but he was glossing over just how dumb the ai is so you play a random adventurer who is trying to save uh the minecraft world or at least one of them because a procedural generation who gives a shit about this one right that's right fuck him uh, from this illager who got banished from his town uh, and who got banished from another town and another town and then stumbled upon the orb of domination and decided, oh, I'll be a big dick. Never mind that the orb of domination should have been Cuba domination, but uh, let's skip that one because that is far too witty, uh, at least for this game. So you're trying to save the world, but it's just the, the pacing just feels all off. There's just long stretches of nothing going on outside of just walking through a procedurally generated map. Or I should say chunk-based, because it feels like it's one of those that it's not procedural generation. It's a bunch of chunks put together, just copy and pasted together, and maybe uh, rotate it around a little bit. Mm-hmm. But they don't try to hide the fact that 
this is completely uh, you know procedural, and you know, this is the only time you'll ever see this map. It, it just feels like uh, the the seams are all showing a little too much. Now, don't get me wrong; I've played games that it's obvious how the map is generated, and absolutely love them. See Binding of Isaac. But Binding of Isaac had some interesting gameplay mechanics, and this is just you're fighting zombies who are more brain dead than usual. There were countless times that I just had a bunch of zombies walking into a wall because I was in a hallway next to them, and they were just trying to get to me through the wall because they couldn't figure out the pathfinding because I hadn't uh, discovered enough of the map or have enough uh of uh, the map generated or however they're doing it. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it, it really took me out of it, you know? And yeah. I know zombies still, but it's every enemy does this. The spiders did it. Uh, the skeletal archers did it. I mean, it's pretty much the gambit of Minecraft uh, foes, only in a third person perspective. So you had uh, little zombies, you had big zombies, you had uh, little fast zombies. And it's just, it feels like a just shovelware game uh, that someone, okay, if it didn't have the branding, it would have felt like a ripoff Minecraft game put over a really, really low tier ARPG. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't going to this expecting something revolutionary, but I was expecting them to at least, you know, put some effort forward. Was that too much for me? Possibly. I I played it too. I mean, you know, I jokingly said I played it for like two minutes earlier. That's not true. I played it for a little bit longer, but not long. I, I played it maybe a half an hour tops. Yeah, I think I um, put a couple of hours into it. Just it's like okay, there, where's the fun in this? Yeah, I, I figured it would be appropriate for my kid, but I just wanted to double check. So because he's he saw it and he's like, oh, I want to play it. I was like, no, buddy, you know that daddy's gonna check out games before you play him, just to make sure. And so I, I checked it out and I mean, it, you know, we're, we'll play it together and that will probably be fun for me just enjoying mm-hmm. it with, with my kid, but that's different from enjoying yeah. the game itself. Yeah. The kid is the entertainment in this one. And I, and I mean, my kid will love it. And I think that, I mean, and I'm not necessarily giving this a pass because there are, because uh, there are, are lots of, of children's or games intended for children, like the later Lego games and even Minecraft, like, you know, old, you know, Minecraft, the original Minecraft intended for, you know, a a younger audience or caught on with a younger audience. It still has a lot of depth for adult players and then for, you know, even kids to grow into. Um, And I I don't think this game has it. This game is, is baby's first uh, ARPG. And like, I, I have some people who I know who have played it that are not as big into games, but their kids saw it and wanted to try it. And they played it and they told me like that they really liked it. And, you know, I'm not like, knocking out you know trying to knock on them like if they like it and have a good time like i envy those people because i want to enjoy things too you know but yeah it's just i've played uh more arpgs and literally the worst arpg i've played is better than this just because the pathfinding works for example yeah or uh, the level up system makes more sense so i should cover that one because that's a, a big one is that so the loot and level up system, all the different levels, which is on an overworld uh, map that, uh, you know, your typical spider web-esque map. And if you find a couple secrets on a level, it may unlock another area that you go to. 
every area has particular loot drops, okay? And instead of the prefix suffix system that is pretty bog standard in uh, in uh, ARPGs, uh, all we- all weapons, all armor, everything is the same item, but it's randomized on what enchantments you can unlock. And there's up to three slots, and each of the three slots, at least early game, you only get one. Occasionally, you'll find something with a second slot. Has those enchantments randomized, so you could choose one of the three to essentially activate. Or one of the two, depending on how lucky you are. And there's some rather clear, powerful choices. And then there's some that's, why would I want this? Like, uh, if you're using a bow and arrow, literally ricochet, getting a couple points into that, where suddenly your shots half the time count for two or three hits uh, because you have limited ammo that you can pick up more, but in the beginning of a level, you only have so many shots. becomes very useful. There's uh, Then there's ones that if you eat food, you get a buff. There's one that uh, if you take your potion, which is just a potion on a timer, you get a, a secondary thing going on. Uh, but there's clear good and bads, and there's no indication of which is which until you start digging around in your inventory and hunting for it. And the way the level up system works is as you level up, you gain essentially enchantment points that you put into armor, weapons, that sort of thing, uh, to level up these enchantments that are on the items. And that's it. If you get a, a better piece of armor, you just disenchant it, get a, your enchantment points, and put it into another one. It just feels like there's just you know, it, there, there's just no reward, and it just wants you to grind and grind and grind uh, for a randomized enchantment. If you're getting just crap enchantments, oh, and you could also spend the money at the blacksmith in your camp to get a random item of of appropriate level uh, to hope to get something better, but then you'll end up spending a lot of money. I mean, it's essentially a loot box, really. It's a, a random item of your appropriate level, no matter how good or bad it is. And that was all I unlocked, just the blacksmith. I'm not sure if you get other NPCs later on. It's just I was incredibly bored with the game, actually. Yeah. It it seemed very boring to me, which is why I didn't keep playing. Um, well, I, I kept playing for a little bit, just like, okay, there's no way it's this bad, right? Uh, and then there's relics that you'll you'll sometimes get at the end of a level that have that's essentially your abilities, but you're limited to three of them. So you, I had a fishing pole which would allow me to hook shot someone in. I had a uh a piece of beef that would allow me to summon a wolf that I had no control over, mind you. It just ran off and did its own thing and attacked things for me. And I had some sort of potion that would uh, give me uh, essentially super speed and be able to hit uh, essentially one-shot most uh, low-level baddies. I never really hit a boss. Uh, The closest I got was just an ambush from some creature that summoned them. Uh, secrets were pretty obvious to spot for the most part. It just it feels like they had an idea of what an ARPG is, but never did any research on why ARPGs can be fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
I mean, I've I, I've thought about playing Path of Exile again. I know we played it for Game Club. I think the first year we did Game Club or something yeah. like that. But it's had quite yeah, a they, few big updates since then, and they've got some. One I just saw, I think, is about like building or like a management thing. Uh, Harvest add city building to the ARPG. Oh, that's and a good I, one. I like city building. Yeah, well, yeah, you're also going to get your fill of that before too long. That's true, but you know, the Path of Excel being free, it's it's easy for me to to try it out again. So, but I've also said I was going to try several other games here recently, and I I haven't. So we'll see. That is kind of amazing. I'm just uh, looking at the screenshots for it. So that's a thing, huh? I hadn't really kept up on Path of Exile. Yeah, kind of like how. The other week, a couple weeks ago, I heard something about Borderlands. So I was like, oh, yeah, I could play Borderlands. And like, I went to install it, and I was like, wait, what am I doing? Why would I do this? I play other stuff. Yeah, play better stuff. Like, I've thought about doing that with the new Call of Duty. Um, what is it? Call of Duty Warzone. Their arena thing. And I went, ah, why would I do that? I don't really like those kinds of games. Just because I like to use, or just because I like Call of Duty doesn't mean I would like one of those. I'm just going to stick to my stompy robots and being an evil overlord. So, anyways. Yeah. Is yeah, that all you? Stomping robots? I mean, it's just a very, very bland. They could have done so much more with this. I think that's, I think that's the biggest fault I have with it is that there's a lot more you could have done with this. But it's just, yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah, I I agree. You could do a lot with it. Uh, is there any actual building of anything involved? I like I said, no. I didn't play for very. Okay. Uh, let's put it this way: I played for a few hours, and it feels like a very substandard ARPG with Minecraft uh, skinned over it. It doesn't have any building, as far as I could tell. It doesn't have really anything that has anything to do with. Uh, yep. Yeah, the core Minecraft survival uh, uh, exploration. It's just, eh. and also it's a little creepy watching the cutscenes. You have the Minecraft S characters uh, with uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the emotions, you know, uh, full uh, facial features, but that, but they have this stuck. Uh, it's heavy in the uncanny Valley. Yeah. Minecraft story mode is like that. Yeah. Mine, remind me never to play Minecraft story mode. Yeah, it's not that great. I mean, I'm sure I'm going to play through the whole thing at some point, probably in the near future, because of how much my kid loves Minecraft. But, I mean, I I played Chapter 1 when it was free. I don't know, Chapter 1 might still be free. But a couple of years ago, Chapter 1 was free. And so I played it, and I was like, eh, it's okay. But it, it is a little bit weird. Just the the sharp contrast and, f- like, fully animated faces, but everything else still being that Minecraft style. Mm-hmm. Uh clicked on my discovery queue and it started playing music oh uh, but anyway uh, i'm not sure if there's really a lot more to talk about minecraft dungeons because yeah you know, it's just all oh, right uh, if you have game pass it's worth checking out just for the spectacle of how bland it is Point uh, it, laugh it, at it. It, it it's like a bowl of oatmeal without anything in it yes sure it would fill the hole but you're not going to enjoy eating it yeah, it can fill the void, but it's not good. There we go. It's not a Lego uh, a early Lego game without uh, interest in the IP. It's bland oatmeal. 
No salt, no sugar, no fruit, just oatmeal. Yeah. Makes me think of grits. I don't like grits. Why are you not from the South? <laughs> Apparently not. I don't I don't like grits. I can eat grits if they're full of butter and sugar, but I can't eat them like in a savory style. And even then with full of butter and sugar, I don't like them very much. Not my thing. But big stomp your mechs are. I don't think I've ever had grits. I mean, I guess they're worth trying. They're not like the worst thing I've ever had, but it's not kefirs. God, kefirs is the worst. But, I feel a rant coming on. No, nah, I mean, it's just gross and disgusting. I don't see how anybody could drink it. Like, I feel like it's a national like joke that um, Eastern Europe plays on the rest of the world. Like, yeah, we like this stuff. And then like secretly they're like dumping it out while they watch tourists from America and Western Europe try it. it. Huh? I never tried it. It's gross. I know my uh, pressure cooker has a mode for fermentation. For you know, it specifically mentions kefir uh, along with yogurt. Yeah. Uh, but personally, I'm probably going to end up using it as a uh, bread proofer. Nice. All right. So, big stompy battle max. Um, I think this is three weeks in a row I've talked about something Battletech related. Yeah. Uh, two weeks ago was the Rogue Tech mod, which was a disaster. Last week, I think I talked about just all of the updates to the base game. This week, uh, I started playing the uh, Battletech Extended 3025 Commander's Edition mod. And boy, is that awesome. So... It's. I don't exactly know what to classify this as because Rogue Tech is essentially like an. Uh, it's the closest thing you can be to a total conversion without it being a total conversion, like a same universe total conversion, if that makes sense. Like mm-hmm. Rogue Tech throws everything away from the base game except for the skeleton and puts all kinds of new stuff on top of it. Whereas Extended refines the base game, makes lots of tweaks to it, adds tons of content. But it's so much that it's not just like, here's some X and some other stuff, like enjoy the new stuff. So I don't quite know where it falls into. Maybe like maybe like an old school expansion, um, like, I don't know, late 90s, early 2000s, when an expansion would be sometimes like a brand new game, but it was still the old game also, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, but essentially the mod does three things three big things that is an umbrella over all of the many small changes underneath it first of all it's a total rebalance of everything in the game weapons costs for things mechs pilots um the economy just everything it's a complete rebalance uh and there's lots of little settings where you can tweak it i started the game on like all of its default everything so that i could experience the mod sort of, I guess, as intended by the developers without ratcheting the difficulty up or making it easier on myself. Um, and it feels really solid. Um, they have made it more feasible and kind of integral to have multiple top pilots. I'll talk about that in a minute. Um, and make it easier to have and maintain multiple battle mechs uh, at, at the same time. Um, the skills all make a lot more sense and the mech quirks make a lot more sense and fit in better. Because in um, with the expansions to the base game, they started adding mechs with quirks that would do specific things. Um, and some of them were a little subpar, and some of them were way overpowered. But 
in general, the new mechs had them and the original mechs did not. Um, and so they've kind of toned down, especially the OP ones. They've added a bunch of new quirks. So most mechs have quirks of some kind now. And they can be positive quirks. They can be negative quirks. Um, so sometimes you'll get mechs that have really kind of OP quirks, but then they'll have a negative one as well. So like the assassin ignores three points of evasion that a mech has, which makes it really good for hunting down light mechs. But because of the type of mech that it is, it now has a new quirk called cramped cockpit. And if your mech overheats, your pilot takes an injury, Ooh. like a guaranteed injury. Um, so you have to be really careful running that mech to make sure that you don't overheat. Um, but yeah, yeah that already sounds pretty interesting. There's a there's a bunch of new quirks. Um, they've tweaked the melee combat system and then added some quirks that affect it. Like because a lot of mechs, you know, the Hatchet Man specifically has a melee weapon, but a lot of mechs have sort of vestigial limbs that are intended to be used for melee. Um, they have battle fists or claws or things like that. And you can see those in the design and they, but they were never really taken into account for the max melee damage. And now they are. And so they have quirks for that and certain ones deal more damage. Certain ones make it um, easier to hit an enemy mech or make it harder to hit them. Like the, um, the Centurion has got the shield on its left arm. And so it gets a, a bonus. Uh, what is it? a plus or a minus one to be hit with melee or it's, it's one difficulty harder to hit that mech with melee because it has the shield. So it's like, Oh, deflection. Um, they've tweaked all the skills so that all the skills are a lot more even in the past. There were really like two sort of builds that for, for your pilots skills that way out, right. That way out, um, outperformed the rest of them. And some of the skills have been beefed up a little bit. Some of them have been nerfed a little bit, so they're all more in line with each other. Um, there's caps on how much accuracy your pilots can now actually get to make the equipment matter a lot more, um, which I think is nice. There's also negative equipment, which you can get as salvage. So it'll, instead of being like a plus one uh, medium laser, it'll be like a minus one medium laser. And so it gets like an accuracy penalty or it overheat, or it heats up more, or something like that. I mean, like, obviously, you never want to pick those, but you get your randomly assigned salvage at the end of a mission. Mm-hmm. So you might get those, and, you know, then you have to either, I mean, you know, you could just sell them, but especially in the early game, you're like, well, shit, I don't have any weapons, I don't have any money. I guess I'll use this shitty laser for a little bit, hope to get a better one. Um, so, huge rebalance of everything. Um, then they, the next thing that they added... The, the next thing that this mod does is it just adds stuff. It adds mechs. It adds variants of mechs. It adds vehicles. It adds variants of vehicles. It adds the entire inner sphere map um, with all of the systems. Um, if you play with the advancing timeline turned mm-hmm. on, um, you, you can choose a starting year. Like there's a few different years for the history, um, you know, based in lore history and the timeline advances. So the map changes, you get updates every month on the progress of like inner sphere wars and stuff like that. And where the borders are shifting and you can see that in the map. Eventually it goes all the way up to the clan invasion. Although I am nowhere near that. Um, I started at 3025, which is when the actual battle tech game ends in like if you finish the campaign, like the year is 3025. And so I started there. 
and I'm in 3026 right now. So I've only advanced a whole year. But every month you get these updates. New mechs are introduced, a new variants, and new weapons and things in line with lore. Like the people who built this mech went through the entire Battletech lore and are like, okay, in the lore, when did was this mech introduced? When was this weapon type introduced? When was this thing found that brought a bunch of Star League era technology back into being able to be produced and like so on and so on and so on. And it's just so much shit is added. And I mean, some of it is actual shit because there's a lot of really bad, a lot of really bad battle mechs and vehicle designs and stuff from the Succession War era that was built with shitty technology. But then some of it's really great. And just the sheer mass of stuff that they've added (laughs) is so like cool for someone like me who loves this universe. Not only that, they took the time to like adjust and then also create like randomization tables and loot tables so that if you're in a particular area of space fighting a particular enemy, you're only going to see stuff that's relevant to those factions. Um, You're a lot less likely to see rare mechs if you stay out in the periphery area, which is where the original game is set. Um, It takes a long time to build up your unit. Disable the storyline as well, or you can play the campaign with this mod enabled, um, and it uses everything from the appropriate time and factions and whatnot. And then it, when you end the campaign, you know you can just keep going, um, and the timeline progresses as normal. At least that's what they said. I'm not playing the campaign. I don't know if I'll ever actually play the campaign again. Honestly, like not because it's bad. I played through it like four times now. I've only played through it once, and I don't feel the need to play through it again. <laughs> I, I felt a little let down at the end. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, the the battle arena, right? Yeah, that could have been so much better. Well, speaking of battle arena, um, other things that they've added: new mission types. One of them being like duels. That's fun. Um, where certain missions are like dual challenges from commanders, other mercenary commanders, or from like a planetary government. Um, you can actually go to Solaris. I have not been there yet, but like it shows up in the news. Like they, in one of the news broadcasts, they talk about Solaris tournaments and all the gladiators and everything. And you can go there, but it's way far away from me. And I don't have the resources to just be like, all right, I'm going to take four months and just travel across the the inner sphere to go and see if I can fight in the gladiatorial arena. I'm going to do that eventually, but not right now. But so they've, they've added all the map. Or just, the entire... just go in that general direction eventually. That's uh, how I was kind of doing at the end of uh, MechWarrior 5 when it was like, you know, this game, I, I, I'm trying, but much like uh, Minecraft Dungeons, I'm having fun with it. Yeah, that's probably what I'm going to do. The problem is, is that if I want to go straight there, I have to cut through the heart of several of the um, successor state territories. And a lot of the heart of those territories are all like four and five skull missions. And I can't field a lance that's four skulls right now. So I still wouldn't really be able to resupply. And then if I go the long way around, well, it's a long, an extra amount of time to get there. But they've so added more like four years. Do what? So more like four years instead of four months. Yes, four years of in-game time as opposed to four months. But... um. Anyways, the new mission types, they've reused the campaign maps um, for some of those missions, which is really cool. They've got some multi-stage missions that actually take place like in the same mission. Um, So like you'll set down 
with a, a kind of a vague objective. It's like, hey, like one mission was like, um, I think it was called like Gone Dark. And it was this base, its comms had gone dark. And so it's like you drop in, you go investigate the base, then you get a distress signal, you have to go investigate another base. And then it, it turned from like just a battle. Then there was like a base defense that I had to do in the middle of that mission. It was, it was very interesting. I don't think I would want to do too many of those. It took a long time to complete. And because of the level that I was playing at, it was kind of a low tier contract. So the rewards honestly weren't worth the time invested. But I could see like a little bit later on, if you've got like a full Lance of Heavy or Medium X, that would be an interesting mission type to, to deal with because it kind of puts you on a timer. If you've got slow mechs, you have to choose like, well, do I want to leave them behind and risk fighting this force with fewer of my mechs right off the bat? Or do I want to stick together and move as a unit, but then the timer runs out and the base is getting destroyed? It's pretty neat. And there's some randomization to those. Um, I did have the game crashed during the first time I tried that mission. And when I launched it the second time, it, I had a different first encounter. Um, <laughs> so that was cool. Um, so it's, it's added all of those things um, and more. I'm sure there's stuff that I haven't mentioned that I've forgotten. I'm sure there's going to be stuff that I discover as I continue playing. Um, oh, there've been more of those little situations added where it's like, you get a little pop-up while you're traveling. That's like, Hey, so-and-so wants to do a thing. Like I've seen new ones of those. Um, and then I've seen there's new voice acting. Um, so new everything. And then finally, the the third thing that I think it adds are several key gameplay additions or changes, something beyond just like the rebalance that I mentioned earlier. The first is that with the introduction of so many new variant types of mechs and such a huge galaxy, they've added the ability to kind of Franken-mech things together. So whenever you get the machine... Uh, the machine shop upgrade for the Argo, you can now take and mix and match mech chassis to create um, the mech type that you want. So say the hunch, the Hunchback. There are probably... F- uh, there's five different versions of the Hunchback now for the era that I'm in. And if you've got one chassis from each, you can basically decide, like, which Hunchback do I want? And there's a penalty for the initial construction... So normally it, it takes one day to ready a mech from your storage. Mm-hmm. The first time you build it, if you use five, five different parts from five different models of the Hunchback, it takes five days to ready. Okay. And then then I, I read, I haven't seen this. I've only done it a couple of times, but I read that you can have unexpected negative quirks pop up if you try and mix and match weird stuff. Like if you try and mix and match two different chassis. So certain mechs that come from, say, the Star League era that have uh, Succession War variants are, are, they look the same on the outside, but they have different chassis. Like they have different sort of skeletons underneath. Mm-hmm. And you can get weird results if you try and mix and match those. And then later on, whenever you get clan tech and things like that, um, you get like Indosteel chassis and Feral Fibrous armor versus standard armor and things like that. You can get some weird results. But I don't, I don't have any of that, um, so I don't know how that exactly can play out. But that's really nice, because even in the base game, you might have three parts of one mech and two parts of another, and depending on what, what difficulty you've sort of decided to play on, you might need five parts to build a mech. 
And, and the default for this mod is four. You can turn it back down to three. You can turn it all the way up to eight, but the default is four. So mm-hmm. that's a really nice feature that I like a lot. So that's one thing. The other thing it adds that I think is enough of a separate thing to warrant its own sort of little mention is all those tags that your pilots have actually do stuff now. Um, I, I think I mentioned this as being a part of um, Rogue Tech, um, but it, it's in here as well. So you get a tag that might say criminal. And before that was just like a little bit of flavor and maybe in one of the pop-up, you know, quick little story things while you're traveling might actually give you an additional dialogue option. Now it gives you your pilot a permanent effect. So criminal, for example, if you take pirate contracts, you get bonuses to the cash payout. And it's not a lot. It's like, I think 5%, but it stacks for your, all the pilots that you have. So that's the, if you take your, the criminal pilot on a mission, you get like a 5% bonus to the cash payout. And so you can stack that. If you have four criminal pilots, then you can get 20% bonus on criminal missions. Um, but all of those perks do stuff now. And I, I keep running into new ones, so I don't know how many that there are, but some of the, the best ones that I'm actually trying to select uh, pilots for, um, at least at this stage of the game, are Merchant. Uh, they get a flat 4%, um, a stackable 4% um, bar, uh, discount on stores. Um, so that is very nice to have. Um, cause that stacks on top of each other. Like they, they just have to be in your company and it stacks yeah, on any reputation right. discounts you get. Yeah. Plus just with how expensive stuff could be 4% yeah. of a big number is still a very big number. Yeah. And then pilots that have, there's a, a few different ways that it affects it, but pilots that give you reduction to the fatigue system. And this is the final thing that I think is worth mentioning. Uh, the system adds what's called fatigue. Every time a pilot goes on a mission, whether they're injured, whether they get out, you know, unscathed, whether the mission fails or succeeds, they now experience fatigue. Um, And what that means is that you shouldn't use them until after the fatigue goes away. And there's a few different factors that affect it. They have these tags. um, Like if you get a pilot who's a Solaris gladiator, they, for example, don't suffer fatigue effects at all. Um, but that so far has been like the rarest one that I've seen. Um, I've only seen it on one pilot that I could potentially recruit. And I check every system I go to for pilots now. Um, so there's that. There's ones that are like steadfast. So you don't have as much uh, fatigue during missions or after missions, regardless of what happens. But so there, there's this fatigue system. And you can take pilots if they're fatigued on a mission. But if you do that, unless they have a tag that prevents them, they automatically get the low spirits penalty on a mission and they generate less resolve for you. The the resolve system has been tweaked as well, which is the sort of points that you use to use your uh, called shot ability. And um, I forget what the other one is, but it gives you like a defensive bonus. They generate less points towards that. And then they have the uh, low spirits penalty. thing which makes those abilities cost more for the pilots to use and then after they finish the mission they cannot go on another mission until the fatigue wears down so if you've got like a consecutive mission and you really want to use your pilot that's got like super good stats then you can but then there's going to be an an additional penalty from that um you can get 
uh, proficiency with max, which reduces the penalty, the fatigue penalty. And then, like I said, there's a few abilities that reduce or remove it altogether. But um, it, it means that you actually have to have more than eight or 10 pilots. Um, so I've got 18, which right now is the maximum that I can have. I have 18 pilots and I've never done that before. I think the most I've ever had in one run was like 15 because I was like connect collecting every uh, Ronin pilot that I could find. They have like little purple. Yeah, they have like little purple symbols next to their names. And if they die or disappear, they cannot be randomly generated again in the same run. Um, but I just have all these pilots now because if you, you know, clearing out all the missions on a planet, even if the mechs are fine, if the pilots can't go, well, then, you know, you can't do anything. So you have to have enough and keep rotating them through so that you can continue to fight. And I, I like that. It's a very neat uh, aspect to the game that makes it feel a little bit more like you're running a mercenary company. And I, I almost forgot. I think I said the pilot thing was the number three, but there's another one that I can't believe I nearly forgot until now. And it's the panic system where pilots can eject. Enemy and ally pilots can now eject. I, I got it before. Like, you know, it's it's a video game, you know. Uh, you don't want your people just randomly ejecting. It can be frustrating. It's hard to control, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm assuming Hairbrain Schemes just decided not to include a system for that. But that is in this mod. Um, and it progresses down several levels. You can track it. Um, it's pretty rare that somebody will just eject the first time they get shot at. Although there's a tag that's like cowardly. Yeah, I was so, going to say, there has to be a tag for that, right? Yeah, there, there are some tags that make it more likely that your pilot will eject. Um, but, uh, there's also tags that make it less likely that they'll eject, but it is a system that's trackable. You can track it on enemy pilots and yours in the middle of combat. And, um, they start out confident, which is sort of baseline stats. Once they start getting shot at taking damage, um, it, it goes to unsettled. Then if they keep taking damage, keep getting shot at, um, <laughs> perturbed or if they lose like weapon systems or a limb pretty quickly on the first like shot or two it will go to stressed then from stressed it goes to panicked if you know if they keep getting shot at keep losing weapons systems limbs etc keep if you keep a mech constantly overheated overheating then they go to um from stressed to panicked and then critical panic and if they can eject any time between stressed and critical panic and there's some type of of sort of role that they have to make like a behind the scenes check essentially to see whether or not they eject. Um, and then the farther up it goes, the more likely they are to eject. There's also some other factors that make it a lot more likely that someone will eject. Like if you strip a mech of all of its weapons, um, they almost always will eject the next time they get shot at. There's been a couple of times where some, some mechs have enemy mechs have stuck around after I've stripped all their weapons. But usually you strip all the weapons, they eject. And usually after a few turns of staying constantly overheated, they seem to eject pretty quick as well. Um, overheating is more deadly, and I think that's why, because overheating itself can cause ammunition to explode. Um, and even mechs that don't have a, a quirk that hurts pilots from overheating, if you keep uh, every turn you keep a mech overheated, it, it's also got sort of a background check that it makes. And you have a chance for a pilot to get injured from overheating, or for ammo to explode. And so if you can keep a mech at, at critical heat for three or four turns in a row, usually the pilot will eject. In other words, in other words, the flamers are actually useful. 
Yes, and they changed the way that flamers work as well. Flamers no longer have ammunition. You can fire them indefinitely, which is how they work in every other Mech Warrior game ever. Um, and instead of applying all of their heat on the same turn, flamers now apply heat across three turns. Um, so it applies half of its heat the first turn, half of its remaining heat the second turn, and then the final half of its heat the third turn. Although it stacks if you keep, like, the whole thing resets if you keep a mech lit on fire with flamer attacks. Mm-hmm. So if you can get a mech overheating with, like, a um, uh, with, with a mech specifically designed around flamers, like, if you can keep connecting with th- two, three, four flamers every turn, you will burn a mech to the ground really quickly. Which is hilarious, huh? Yeah, because, I mean, I've used, um, like, a, a locust with four flamers to take down uh, a Warhammer, which is a the Locust, a 20-ton light mech. It's one of the shittiest mechs in the game. And the Warhammer is a 70-ton heavy mech, one of the best mechs in the game introduced in the Heavy Metal DLC. I've burned one of those down in five turns because the pilot ejected because it could not cool down. And then I got a Warhammer uh, because it was an ejection. Instead of me blowing the mech up, I got three parts for it. Yeah, only, you know, slightly toasty. Yeah. Slightly. Look, look at it this way. You didn't have to paint it black. No, I did not. And my my, land, my company like colors first, are black. Sort of like the first age of a Falcon 9 after it gets brought back on. It's like, <laughs> oh, did, uh, yeah, we could just keep it black, right? Yeah. This thing was white when we, when we launched it, right? So yeah, that's... I'm sure there are more things that I will discover in this mod. I might... I, I probably will talk about it again when I finally get to the clans. Um, but I mean, this, this, the, the base game, I think is a great game. Like this isn't a case of what, we, cause we've had this happen several times in the last few weeks of like modders come along and make the game playable or make the game good or whatever. Like Battletech, if you don't want to go through the process of modding the game, cause it was a process. Yeah. Battletech is a great game and it was a process to do this cause you have to install multiple things. And it take it took like an hour and a half for it to install, and I, I don't know why it took that long. Most people say it does take a while to install, but it was weird that it took it so long to install on my machine. And it adds a little bit of instability, and it adds a few bugs, um, you know, certain stuff like the mech base stopped working, and you have to reload the game or reload a save, or missions don't complete even though you completed all the objectives. That one's the most frustrating. Takes a while for the reactor to come online. It does, and it does increase load times for most missions. Um, it's not terrible. Uh, before they would, I mean, I'm playing it on my SSD. Before they would load in maybe 20 to 30 seconds, and now it's 30 to 50 seconds. Occasionally, there's a mission that will take like two minutes to load, and that can be frustrating, but I accept that as a, a limitation of this mod. Um, it more than doubled the amount of RAM that the game needs. Um, on my system. So it went from using something like four ish gigs of Ram to uh, nearly 10 gigs of Ram. Damn. So, you know. uh, so almost a uh, half a Chrome. Indeed. Almost half a Chrome. So, you know, two thumbs up on that one. Um, but yeah, I mean this, you know, the original battle tech is a good game, a really good game, but this mod like breathes new life into it or a whole new it's like a different game, but still being the same game. I don't know how to say it. It's really good. I enjoy it very much. 
I think if anyone out there is listening and they haven't fallen asleep while I talk about this big stompy mech game again, um, <laughs> and you're and you're interested in it, if you haven't played the original game, I would say play the original game first. Maybe play through the campaign, get used to the, to the mechanics. Um, it all transfers over. Get used to that, and then go for the mod and start your first career with the mod. So and just go the, from there. Yeah, you kind of like this game. Yeah, just just a little bit. So, and I just thought of like three more things. I'm not going to talk about it. There's so much, but I just thought of like even more little things. It's like, oh yeah, the mod does this and it does that, but I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go into it. I've spent, no, no, you want to go into it, don't you? Yeah, I've you spent enough. Week. You, you could go another 45 minutes or so no i'm good i'm good if i wasn't like hacking up my lungs and living on cough drops and no spray right now i might be tempted to but i i have kind of a time limit tonight because i all my medicine is all my drugs are going to wear off basically melt into a pile of uh, ooze and diabetes yeah pretty much a pile of allergens and diabetes. That's what I'll be on the floor. So yeah, Battletech, it's real good. This mod, like four thumbs up. I only have two thumbs, but you know, somehow I'm giving it four thumbs up. Oh no, Look. simple. Your pilot's giving two thumbs up and the mecha's giving two thumbs up. <laughs> there we go. There we go. So all right. Um yeah, that's it for games we played this week. So you wanna go yeah. do the news? Yeah, I guess we could uh, you know, uh, get to the news. So it was a very light news week because uh, the United States is on fucking fire. And nobody Literally. wants to news. No. But we do um, have a few I, things. I was going to say, a matter of fact, a couple of the sites I use for uh, sources for the show actually refuse to publish news today at all. So, yeah. Right? Yeah. But we do have a few things, uh, yeah. and the first of those things. The first, for, uh, God, you do it. The first of the things. <laughs> yep, sounds about right. The first of the things is from our Discord. Uh, well, at least originally, but I've seen it pop up as well. From our good buddy Ghost Shark. Thirty years later, a lost Days of Thunder NES game has been recovered from twenty-one floppy disks. So, for those who don't remember, Days of Thunder, that's the stock car racing movie that starred Tom Cruise in, what was it, the mid-80s? Mid to late 80s, I think, yeah. I Uh, saw it one time many years ago. Let's let's be honest. It's essentially Top Gun with uh, car racing, or Top Gun is Days of Thunder with... uh, uh, jets. I can't remember which came out. Actually, Days of Thunder is uh, 90s. Uh, yeah, 1990, was, Days of Thunder. Yeah. So, mm, uh, uh, Top Gun was obviously first, but it's the same feel. You know, it's uh, it, that kind of... It's kind of weird saying gritty with Tom Cruise, but you know, there's this certain feel to uh, early Tom Cruise movies. Uh, 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 action-oriented movies. And Days of Thunder is yeah, right in that. And there was a Days, a Days of Thunder game, but it turns out there was another one being worked on that was a pitch for a game that just never saw the light of day. They didn't. Uh, the pitch was uh, unsuccessful, so it went to a different company. And the developer of it, uh, Chris Oberth, uh, who had 
dad uh, in 2012, his family has been going through his stuff because he backed up everything. They've been going through his basement and he has a lot of uh, data to go through. And they found this weird, you know, Days of Thunder on a uh, hard drive uh, backup uh, spread across 21 five and a qu- uh, quarter floppy disks. And the Video Game Hi- uh, History Foundation has been working on putting it all together and they finally got it working. So, yeah, I mean, it, it just it's fascinating to see a piece of video game history that we never knew existed come out after all these years. Because 1990 was a long time ago. <laughs> It was. That was 30 years ago now. Oh. It yeah, it's only been mentioned once by the developer in a 2006 interview uh, and never uh, talked about again. The disc was labeled Nintendo Hot Rod Taxi Final. Uh, the, reto- uh, re- the recovered prototype from this disc turned out to be a playable early proof of concept project about cars driving through a city, but its existence was a brief guess that somehow was related to Days of Thunder was well, enough to focus the archivist's search for other discs for anything that might need uh, coding to work on the NES. And they finally got it. And they're actually working on uh, putting out cartridges for this, uh, some uh, reports are saying. Which is just wild, huh? Yeah. I think uh, you is... can actually order working cartridges with the game on it. Let's see how much this is. Because uh, their site, last time I looked was a little melty and looks like it's still getting a little melted or they just sold out because they didn't expect it to happen but also all or this to blow up like this but all sales proceeds goes to the original developer's family as well but it would be a huge collector's item huh yeah i, I guess it can fox too now that i think about it huh you know that game that was kind of rumored to happen but mm. oh, sorry yeah. go ahead yeah, but then they put it on the whatever it was, yeah. the NES Classic. Yeah. Um, for I, uh, for uh, Star Fox 2. Yeah. But I think that this is very cool. Like, sort of the idea of, like, a video game artifact um, being discovered, reconstituted, and then, you know, hey, here's this cool thing that this developer worked on that's connected to this other piece of um, media history. I mean, yeah, Days of Thunder was not... You know, it's not Schindler's List, but it's it's something that people will know and remember. Um, yeah, and also remember there was also a different Days of Thunder game that was released later on. Yeah, but so, it's just a, a neat thing when and we see this pop up in in museums for all other types of media and and historical artifact and things like that. Like, it's nice to see. Um, and to think, like, hey, you know, how many more of these are out there in basement somewhere, or in mm-hmm. you know, computers locked up in storage, or you know, boxes of miscellaneous floppy drives? You know, what more will be discovered? And I'm not expecting like, I don't know, a Rosetta Stone or something, but you know, just neat little things to put into archive. And I don't know, I'm sure somebody has a copy of Rosetta Stone in their basement somewhere. <laughs> Touche, you got me there. But you know, the actual Rosetta Stone. Or, or something like that, but oh, or like uh, I guess uh, something like an early build of Super Mario Brothers or something, you know? Yeah, yeah. So because yes, Days of Thunder, not exactly the most 
awe-inspiring uh, property, but you know, something like an early Castlevania game or an early uh, Mario game that you know, a, a prototype of that. You know, just one of the big names. It would just yeah. be, but that that would be like finding the Ark of the Covenant, huh? Yeah. Just don't open it. <laughs> no, unless you want to have your face melted off. Oh, um, it is 2020, so yeah, bring it on. That's right. How bad could it be? But yeah, I mean, this is this is a neat story, a neat little piece of history, um, and a nice bit of of preservation, digital media preservation. Um, yeah. It also goes to show you that that when floppy disks were still widely used, that they were more more robust than the shitty ones of like the late. 90s early 2000s like old yeah, school this, floppies were high quality yeah, well this was also the big floppies or i should say the big floppies this was actually medium size the five and a quarter inch so uh the big ones were the big gargantuan seven inch ones that uh you see on like war games that never yeah, yeah by the time the consumer models really were out uh, the uh, five and a quarter inch i think were more popular yeah, I have seen and used all of the, I guess, main sizes of floppies. I'm sure there were some one-offs or lesser-known uh, standards, but... Yeah, I never used the Gargantuan ones, but did uh, have games on five and a quarter and three and a half. Yeah. So, thanks for that, Ghosty Goo, sending us a, a news article to look at and to talk about. Yeah, uh, look at with our eyeballs. Indeed, with our own two eyes. Um, yeah, which, uh, uh, which one uh, of us uh, has the two eyes? Or is it just we get one each? We get one each, collectively. Which, for you, might be an upgrade. <laughs> I mean, if I had one good eye instead of two shitty ones, I might take might take that trade. Yeah, plus, uh, you know, you'd be closer to a pirate. Then you'd <laughs> a, a parrot? Or, or would you go for the monkey? Um... Probably a monkey. I think I'd go for a monkey. Uh, a little like spider monkey or something, you know? Parrots are mostly just annoying, but a monkey, like if you piss a monkey off, he can do some da- some real damage to you. So I'd stay on the monkey's good side and then like hurl him at my enemies. Like, attack, monkey. Only he would have a cute name. I would say George, but I think that's stealing too much from, from popular culture. Or uh, you let your kid name it. <laughs> my kid would name it George. Mm-hmm. Or something really stupid and nonsensical. Monkey make monkey face. Nah, that's that's too sensical for him. He would name it just like random sounds and syllables. Like, hey, what what do you want to name this monkey? Uh, random screeching, uh, uh, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or blunk. That was the last thing he went. Like he he decided to name one of his stuffed animals. Um. And I was like, oh, yeah, what's what's his name? He's like, Blunk. I'm like, why? And he was like, because it's funny. I'm like, it's it's not. But I guess since you're six, your idea of humor is very different from mine. Or he's inherited your sense of humor. Maybe. But he's, he lacks th- nearly three decades worth of refinement. So Wait, this is the refined version? Oh, yeah. Wink. They're poor parents. Yeah, fuck them. I didn't realize we were that far south. <laughs> yeah. All right. Let's talk about something else that's most people think of as southern. Because um, it's in West Virginia. 
Fallout 76 amounts to, quote, major failure, the Australian government says. Yeah. I mean, yeah, Australia, we knew that already. Yeah, this was just, I saw this headline when I was going around for news, and I just thought, oh, well, we need to beat the dead horse some more, it seems. So this is coming back around to EB Games, and they refuse rebates in Australia. And it's gone to lawsuits. It's gone to uh, some bickering. And the Australian government has said Fallout 76 was bad enough to require refunds. I mean, that's essentially the Cliff Notes version of it. Is that, yeah. (laughs) The Australian consumer law provides customers with the right to ask for their choice of repair, replacement, or refund when they have purchased a product that has a fault which amounts to a major failure, the ACCC Commissioner Sarah Court said in a press release. Retailers must ensure that they train their staff so that they do not misrepresent to customers their consumer guarantee rights under the Australian Consumer Law, including the right to obtain a refund in certain circumstances. So holy shit, right? Yeah. Government says, no, fuck you. Give these people their money back. Basically, <laughs> I'm paraphrasing here, but that's basically what the Australian government did. Good for good for them. Good for being a real country, Australia. Yeah, it's nice to see uh, you know consumer protections, right? Yep. It's just uh, this is going to be a very short uh, discussion. It's more just point and laugh, and more thinking. You know, I thought of when Australia was on fucking fire, and you know all the censorship that they have in video games. It sounds nice there. Oh, and also the fact that everything on the entire fucking continent tries to kill you. Including the continent itself. Yeah. But, you know, small price to pay for having consumer protection and um, a healthcare system that works and, uh, you know, rights. And sure, maybe the game has gotten better over the couple years of uh, desperately trying to fix it and shoving microtransactions and breaking promises, but... Fuck it. I'm tired of giving excuses. If a game sucks, it sucks. And the modders can't save this one. At least yet. Uh, I'm sure that they'll uh, put a microtransaction-based thing where you know, pay microtransactions and you're able to get a server that is also broken. But hey, you could upload approved mods that you could also buy through microtransactions. Yay. And they'll all be uh, shitty reskins. Sorry, no dildo swords for you this time around. You'll just have to go back to Sanctuary for the Penetrator. The dildo probably won't be very floppy, though. And it's got to be floppy for maximum comedic effect. They'll probably make it really rigid like a sword or an axe. Yeah, because Bethesda misses the point always, right? Indeed. Indeed. So, uh, anything else on this one? Or I don't think so. Just, ha-ha, Fallout 76 sucks. Yeah, shitting on Bethesda. So, Indeed. So, so the- Third and final news topic of the night. Video games don't have to be educational to spark learning. Yeah, I found this one to be interesting. This was on my kind of deep dive. Oh, crap. I only have two decent news topics. What can I find? What can I find? And I found this. This was uh, from NPR uh, a few days ago. Talking about how the writer of this was... uh, She was not a great student. She just never really did well in school but found a a spark of learning in uh, 
appreciation of history playing Assassin's Creed. Mm-hmm. I found that really uh, kind of uh, fascinating that it could uh, kind of spark this interest in learning and someone that really didn't you know, have it before. I never really, well, I consider it a little bit, but not for something like Assassin's Creed, which I realize does have its place in history, but they also kind of whitewash things and they kind of change events around to fit their storylines. But I always attribute it to more, not educational games, but something that has a stronger basis. Something like Kerbal Space Program. Mm-hmm. But I just found it as an interesting uh, discussion topic, possibly. Yeah, I mean, I have found games to be very educational over for the over the years, even if education wasn't their intended purpose or kind of the you know basis or backdrop of where they're from. Like you know, like you just said, Kerbal Space Program. Technically, that's not like an educational focused game, at least not on the whole. It's got a couple of like you know missions that are uh, or scenarios that are real missions, but um, you do learn a lot if you invest any amount of time in that game. Um, about, you know, simple or basic rocket mechanics or rocketry and aerodynamics. And, you know, no, it's not legit, perfect, realistic, but you kind of get your feet wet. And if you're interested in it, you can move on to learn about it in, in other ways. And I've played a lot of games over the years that have done that. Like pretty much the entire like uh, Total War, I think it's Total War franchise, like that had Medieval and Rome and you know, et cetera. Like, I don't expect those games to be a hundred percent accurate, but learned a lot about history um, of the medieval world and the Roman world from sort of how politics worked and governance, um, weapons, battle tactics, social uh, norms and concepts um, from those games because they actually took a lot of time to research and try and create game worlds that as best as you know, we know in, in modern times, like what those games look like. Um, there's other games like Mass Effect. Um, in the codex of Mass Effect, there's a lot of actual scientifically accurate information um, about the ways that certain things work, like red shifting and blue shifting for things that are moving near the speed of light. Um, that is covered in the codex of Mass Effect. If you want to go sort of explore a little bit more about the world of the game, oh, you're also learning some stuff about science. And those are just a few examples. There's other stuff in there as well. Um, And and I'm someone who loves to read this stuff, who loves to delve into the lore of a world. And as such, you know, whenever games put real information, real history, real science, whatever, in their games, I have have learned about it and picked up on it and sort of gone from there in in various games. If I kept talking and kept thinking about it, I could probably list off way more examples um, of them, but you know, I'll, I'll shut up a minute and let you talk. Uh, Well, I was just uh, uh, sitting here trying to think of some other examples that you didn't really bring up, but I'm thinking also kind of how gameplay mechanics kind of work. Uh, Play a little bit of the long dark. right. So, very basic survival techniques, uh, how uh, the uh, how you need to establish a shelter, how to uh, uh, be able to uh, navigate in uh, some respect. Uh, roguelites, uh, 
Uh, well, there's another one. Uh, Damon, I'm blanking on it, but also a more survival aspect. But it's giving uh, ideas of uh, uh, protect yourself from the weather, uh, how to do makeshift shelters, that sort of thing, through the crafting system. Uh, that sort of thing. Uh, a couple of hunting games I played years ago, very basic ideas on how to uh, hunt and track animals all through gameplay mechanics, but it's still the same idea that it's teaching you the very basics of how to do something. Fishing games in general could teach you the basics on how uh, certain species of fish will uh, react. Then you could go a little bit more kind of the abstract and talk about how like something like cooking mama teaches you the very basics of how to cook a, a certain type of dish. Right. Yeah. Or, I'm also looking at it more as a gameplay mechanic uh, than how, you know, going into the codex and saying, uh, you know, this is talking about red shifting and blue shifting, because honestly, I never really went to the codex of Mass Effect. Yeah, no, that's fair. I don't expect everyone to have done that. But, you know, the the education wasn't the main purpose of the game. It was just kind of, you know, put in there as a little something extra. And I found it and, you know, so on. Um, but it also kind of shows our different uh, focuses. You know, I'm more of a gameplay guy. Yeah, and I'm not. Um, I suppose, though, there are games that, like, help you learn a little bit about programming. Um, yeah, uh, there's a few uh, uh, games in actually the programming uh, puzzle section that is essentially setting up a very basic code. Uh, there's uh, uh, the mach- uh, one that teaches you about machine learning that I played a while back that was in early access, If True Learn. Mm-hmm. Uh, that teaches you how machine work, uh, learning works on a very generalized level through a, a puzzle game. Uh, i trying to think of some others, uh, but I'm blanking on them <laughs> because, of course, I am, right? Yeah. I mean, I think even games like, you know, we talked about Minecraft earlier, but I think even a game like Minecraft can teach the player, can teach people something. Like, my my kid had no understanding, no concept of how things are made before Minecraft, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Like, yeah, you know, stuff gets made, stuff gets built, but it's like, whatever, you know, one day there's not something there, and then the next day there is. And like through Minecraft, both through play and through some of the mechanics, and, you know, it's like, oh, like if you want to build a house, you got to chop down a tree and get some wood and turn that into planks and then build a house. And even that is is educational um, or can be educational to the right person. You know. or, I bet Anita's uh, 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 talked about how some of her students haven't really uh, the grasp of where their food comes from and just think, oh, the store has it. Uh, something like Stardew Valley would be really mind-boggling to them where you're growing all the food and selling it, but also have cooking in it as well and uh, learning how uh, these communities grow up uh, and grow connected to one another. Yeah. Any city builder, um, you know, Sim Cities is kind of the first one to come to mind, but any city builder, um, you have to think about some basic planning for power, water, roads can can give someone, you know, a little bit of an of an insight into building and developing a city. Um or uh, said like roller coaster tycoon teaches you the uh, what goes behind the uh, on behind the scenes on how a theme park is ran and also the, some of the forces required uh, or 
uh, that are works. Ah, sorry, words. Uh, some of the forces behind how roller coasters work. Yeah. Um, and you know, even that it's like on an even, even more sort of basic informational level and maybe more along the lines of where the writer of this, uh, article was about like just sort of being in the setting of the world of something like think about any like shooter. If you ever played any modern military shooter, they go to great lengths to make those weapons as accurate as possible, both in the, in the models, in the sounds, and that applies to a lot of games, car games, like, huh? Unless it's a shotgun. Then if you're more than three feet away, it's worthless. Yeah. Um, but, you know, any any car racing game like Forza or Gran Turismo, um, games that have planes in them from simulators to like flight sim to arcade shooters like Ace Combat, like they still go to great lengths to realistically or accurately portray those things in game and usually there's like a little blurb about them or even just through sort of osmosis you learn like oh this is that thing and that and that's you know this other thing um that's how i got like playing video games is how i first got interested in cars and now i know you know a lot of stuff about cars in the real world but it spawned from initially being interested in car games same with aircraft so yeah Yeah, then you could kind of go down the rabbit hole and do things like world of war planes or World of Warships, where you're learning about military history through the different uh, uh, vehicles that you're able to obtain and fly or drive or whatever. Right? Yeah. As they or, have a blurb of uh, history there as well. Yeah. Or real-life historical events. Like, um, you know, I was talking earlier about in Battletech, the progression of the uh, of the histories who play the game. Like, a lot of games do that for real historical events. And, you know, maybe it's the same sort of Europa Universalis, whatever type of game. But, you know, that stuff is there in the background to help create the setting. But you might pick up some stuff about history and events through that. Or uh, another one I just thought of, Freelancer. Be able to turn off the uh, uh, inertia, inertia dampeners. You'd be able to mm-hmm. do plutonium flying. <laughs> yeah. Flip around and shoot someone behind you. Yeah. Uh, because typically, uh, uh, space shooters, you know, uh, spacecraft or uh, aircraft, but in uh, that one, you're able to essentially ter- disable that for a short time and actually fly like a spaceship really would. I know uh, Battlestar Galactica also uh, did things like that as well, but that's, well, not the video game doesn't ca- cover that. Yeah, you can do that with Elite Dangerous as well. And one of one of the Battlestar Galactica games had that. Um, I haven't played enough of it. There was one I played on PlayStation 2, I think it was. It might have been Xbox 360. But it was based on the older Battlestar Galactica, not the uh, remake of the show. Where everybody was wearing seatbelt buckles for uh, their jackets. Yes. <laughs> but um, it, it had that. Yeah, that, had, that fashion trend never ca- caught on. Which is sad. We'd all be a lot more safer with seatbelt buckles all the time. Yeah, but imagine trying to get out of your car and you know you keep unbuckling your jacket. It's like, oh, which one? <laughs> no, but yeah, video games. A lot of things spark learning. I think you can learn from movies, from books, from video games that aren't intended to be educational because uh, not 
I don't know if most of the time is right. Um, there's just so much stuff that is created all the time, but at least a lot of the time, um, the people who are creating this stuff want their setting to feel authentic. And one of the best ways to do that is to just go to real places or times in history um, and draw on that for something else or, or, or go to real things that exist and draw on those for your source material. And then if it's something that's interesting to you, you're going to absorb a little bit of it. And who knows, you might start looking it up, researching it, or just diving deeper in the medium that you're already in and learning more in that way. I do have to say uh, before we move on, because I think we've kind of exhausted this, is that it's nice to see video games kind of highlighted as a positive force for learning. That's not just, oh, well, there's this educational game or you can learn about rockets from uh, Kerbal Space Program, but talking about how video games as a whole can be a learning experience if you look in the right place. I mean, we both know that, but to have it on NPR, and I realize NPR kind of left leading because they're grounded in reality. Uh, but yeah, it's a nice change of pace uh, from video games are evil everywhere. Yeah, I agree. 100%. Yay, positivity. Yeah, because we need every little bit we can right now. Indeed. Indeed. So, um, moving on, uh, we didn't have anything from Community Corner this week. I mean, technically we had yeah, the was- article he sent us. Yeah, I didn't see anything on the Twitter. I checked the email. There was nothing there except for the usual moths. So as per usual, if you wish to send us something, you could do uh, so on the Discord like Ghost Shark did. You could uh, send it to us via email, vglpodcast at gmail.com, or you could send it to us on Twitter, uh, Podcast over there as well. In uh, yeah, well, we did have Jim also talking about the flag from uh, the uh, ISS uh, uh, going around the moon eventually on a SpaceX capsule, but that's not really a video game, so we don't really want to talk about it too much, do we? Outside of how cool watching uh, you know, uh, that launch was, um, I don't think anything else to. No, I watched the launch with my kid. That was fun. Mm-hmm. Let's do it with Anita, so that was fun. Yeah. Did Anita count down to blast off as loud as she could? Because my kid did. Uh, no. She was kind of groggy because she woke up from a nap. Fair enough. Yeah. Well, that's what happens with teachers. Uh, they sleep during the summer. <laughs> yeah, they don't sleep the rest of the year. Just so Pretty much, actually. So, doobly-doo for Discovery Q? Yep, and I have one immediately. Sweet. Although I'm going to have to reload my page because... Okay, there we go. Well, I got a porn game first off, so... I got something interesting looking. So, remember Braid? Yes. What happens if you put Braid together with a hero shooter? Uh, Well, you also get robotics because you just roboted the fuck out right there. But Quantum League, this is... A hero shooter pseudo like Overwatch with a time loop mechanic. So I sat here and had to watch this a bit because this is weird to watch. So essentially it's a 2v2 uh, hero shooter where during the match 
time will rewind and you're playing with clones of yourself and your teammate running around the field as well. And the idea is to kill all the other clones? Question mark? <laughs> and they don't explain this really well at all. And uh, from what I can tell, the player base is just not there. But this is a very fascinating game. The problem is that this is a small studio. This is a very odd game. And it's also early access with a $20 price tag. So it's going to be a hard sell. They're saying six months in early access, which uh, good luck with that, right? Because they always say six months at least, right? No matter if it's been years, right? Yep, just six months. We'll and, just they're for six about, months. and they're talking about increasing the price on a multiplayer-focused 1v1, 2v2 uh, uh, shooter. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be a tough sell, but it's interesting, right? Indeed. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. I got, I'm pulling up my, I'm going to put the link in now. Speaking of games of this type, I got Crusader Kings 3. There's the link. It's all bold and stuff. Mm-hmm. Don't need it to be that, but I mean, it's uh, just like I like my barbecue sauce. Bull. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's Crusader Kings, but number three. So if you like the medieval sort of um, 4X type game that uh, tries to be historically accurate um, very in depth if you like to you know marry off your kids and um, mar- mm-hmm. marry off some of your kids and then marry the other ones well this is the game for you it's like Crusader Kings 2 only one more indeed so I got an interesting point click uh, I'm not sure what this is exactly because uh, the tags are being surprisingly unhelpful. I mean, more so than usual. It's called Observation. Observation is a sci-fi thriller uncovering what happened to Dr. Emma Fisher and the crew of her mission through the lens of the station's artificial intelligence, SAM. So essentially, 2001 A Space Odyssey meets uh, a VR experience game, sort of. I mean, not really VR, but... you know. Actually, it doesn't mention VR, but uh, sort of a walking simulator, sort of. But this kind of reminded me of another game that I've uh, actually been meaning to play at some point called Experience uh, 112 or 112, where it's you have indirect control and you're looking through essentially the security system of this uh, research station. And it has that kind of feel where you have this very fixed perspective and you're not in control. You're just trying to figure out what's going on. It has that sort of feel. So that's very interesting. I kind of like that. Now, they do say uh, sci-fi thriller and it has the horror tag. So who knows what happens. But it has some pretty positive uh, reviews overall. And they're saying it's one of the best horror games come out on Steam. Uh, Some bad facial animations, though. So, yeah. Interesting, to say the least. And I'm all for something a little strange. Or something a little different, I guess I should say. Anyway. I was going to say, I'm pretty strange. Are you for me? Don't you wish. <laughs> um, so I got one Ember. I, I've heard a little bit about this before um, it popped up here. Essentially, it's a, uh, a gig economy, or you play a gig economy firefighter. Um, so you 
choose houses or places that you're going to go put out fires. You have to rescue people and try and rescue people's stuff. Um, apparently, or based on what I've heard, it's both a good game and also a good sort of comment commentary on the world that we live in, especially if you live in America. Um, but it's nice to see first-person shooter mechanics used for something other than just, like, shooting and killing people. Not as in, like, those games are bad, but it's just nice to see sort of a, a branch out from the mechanics. Oh, you're killing the fire. That is true. You are killing the fire. But um, the whole game can, apparently can be played up with up to four players in co-op. Or you can play it alone. Um, but it looks neat. So I got Gwent, the Witcher card game. I mean, is there anything that needs to be said about Gwent at this point, right? Toss a coin to your Witcher. There, I did it. I wish you could undo it now. Nah. I actually haven't played uh, Gwent myself. I haven't either, honestly. I doubt I will now. Yeah, I, I have a feeling that it's probably a little late if, unless there's a big influx of players to be able to get into it because, you know, the people that are still playing it are the hardcore players. I mean, it's sort of the Hearthstone problem where uh, after a while you only have the decade people playing and if you want to get into it, whew, right? Yeah. Uh, Does it have uh, like a single player? Actually, I don't know. I have no idea. I never played it. I know that in The Witcher 3, when you play Gwent, there's like a whole tournament system and you have to, like, you can become like the best Gwent player in the, the world or whatever. But mm-hmm. I mean, I don't, I don't know if in just the standalone Gwent game, if there's that. No idea. Anyway. I might check it out for a single player experience, but. Um, yeah, since our card don't, uh, it seems to be over, huh? Yeah. Going in. Which Probably means. Probably one more. And then we could talk about it one last time, right? Indeed. Oh, Gedonia, not Sidonia. So my next game on my list is uh, Gedonia. Gesundheit. When I saw this pop up, I thought of Zelda, uh, the most oh, recent. Yeah, I was about Zelda. to say. I mean, that feels like Breath of the Wild. Yeah. Um, it's, it says in the blurb, Gedonia is a classic open-world RPG featuring a complete freedom of building your character, exploring a huge world, and completing quests. But it does look very... Breath of the Wild inspired in its uh, sort of look and feel. Yeah. I'm tempted for nine bucks to just buy it, but the only problem is, is that if I buy it right now, it'll be months. It, at best weeks, if not months, before I play it. Well, I'm just, they're saying the planned early access is going to be 14 to 18 months. Maybe uh, for a good thing. Oh, hey, they're being honest. 14 to 18 months. That feels at least semi-realistic. Yeah. What? What? Cool. So my my next game. If you've got one, you can go. Uh, oh, I got one. Uh, I have Gunfire Reborn because yeah, Gunfire's been dead. That's right. So Gunfire Reborn is a first-person roguelite. Has a very low-poly art style to it, at least for the character models. But the world, it kind of uh, is yeah, looks pretty bog standard. So it has this kind of weird juxtaposition about it. I mean, you can see uh, uh, that that screenshot where the eleventh uh, the one with the characters versus the background. It looks just like got like they've been photoshopped in. But uh, the well, the top uh, review probably has uh, best risk of rain, dead cells, and Borderlands all had a baby because it has kind of that cel shaded art style to it. At least the character models does. 
maybe that's what's kind of feel like it's kind of off is that the character models are has that outline sh- pseudo shell cell shaded uh look to them but the world doesn't you know how, how borderlands does yeah and that's why it feels off plus it's a roguelite so you know randomization of loot so but it actually looks like there's some puzzle element as well so yeah interesting uh why does this feel familiar though? The developer hasn't done anything else on Steam, so probably just, yeah, you know, it, it feels like other first person uh, uh, shooters, uh, roguelites. So go for it. Gotcha. Um, so, yeah, uh, I got Drox Operative 2. Um, Drox Operative is a uh, Starship ARPG or a, a spaceship, a- whatever, ARPG. Um, I've had the original for years. I've played through it a couple of times. Um, and I, I don't typically like ARPGs, but I've always been like, look, if you've got the right setting, especially if it's like a sci-fi thing, you've got a much better chance of me playing your game, even if it's not something I would normally like. And this is another example of that. Um, in terms of ARPG stuff goes, I mean, it's it's pretty standard in that respect. You do missions for various factions and there's a story plot that you progress and um you build up uh your random loot that gets increasingly ever more powerful as you go through the game and get to the harder and harder regions you upgrade your ship get different ships uh the ships kind of play like character classes but not exactly because you can get better ships in the same sort of line they get larger and more powerful as you go but I mean, it, it's just a spaceship-themed ARPG. But it's nice to see another one. Um, possibly. It looks like there's co-op. I can't remember if the first one had co-op. It's been a few years since I've played it. I don't think it did. But this one, they're saying it does have co-op. Um, and looks like there's more stuff. Just a lot more stuff. Mm-hmm. Oh, it looks like they're adding primitive races that you can uh, protect or exploit for resources and things so that's nice um but it might be nice if you could do build like fleets and things like that but i kind of maybe starts to change the purpose of the game regardless it's uh it's good i like it way better than minecraft dungeons um well most games are better than minecraft dungeons i know it, it doesn't take much but can confirm this is better than minecraft dungeons yeah but i could say not all games because you know like warrior 5 right I would rather play MechWarrior 5 than Minecraft Dungeons. Uh, actually, I would rather prick myself in the eye than play both, but if I had to choose, you know, uh, you know Minecraft, uh, 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 Minecraft Dungeons requires a little bit of uh, thought to it every so often. MechWarrior 5 would be a good podcast game, which is a bad MechWarrior game. Uh, and honestly, there's a lot better RPGs out there, so, you know, it's kind of just reminded me, you know, I'm much rather play uh, something else. Yeah. But anyway, uh, how about something else? Rising Lords, a medieval turn-based strategy game with card and board game elements with a very interesting art style as well. It has a that sort of medieval painting look to it, doesn't it? Um, I need to go look at it. Some of the screenshots don't really do it justice. Uh, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. It's the art style. Yeah, the art style. It has... Uh, uh, a more strategic element to it uh, with a, a card uh, mechanics as well. I'm not sure if this is a deck builder or what, though. So it's a little tough to say. It's in early access. 
it's a bit expensive for an early access game. And they do say that the full version will be a bit more expensive to reflect the larger amounts of content. So it's a $20 early access game. And there's some people that are saying that it's a little imbalanced right now, but it has an interesting feel to it. So your next one. Um, well, I've gotten two that you had on your list already, and this is a... I'm not going to put it on the list. Overgrown Genesis. It's a zombie survival porn game. Oh, that's it's, a good one. It looks like it's made in RPG Maker. Um, and not even a good one, huh? No. No. So, I'm pretty sure you've talked about this one before, but I'm going to throw it on the list anyway. Super Mega Baseball 3. So this is the third installment of the Super Mega Baseball series. Uh, about the best baseball you could get on PC. The first one was very, very arcadey and very over the top. And they kind of grounded it more in reality in the second and now the third installments. Uh, it is a very premium price, $45, which is a bit of a hard uh, uh, price tag to uh, swallow for an unlicensed baseball game. So you, know, you don't have... Uh, the teams that you may enjoy. It also you know, allows them to kind of do more wacky stuff that has a more cartoonish art style still, but not as extreme as the first installment. And it looks like they have you know, fleshed out the character development as well, but more just based on the screenshots. So it's sort of a more RPG-esque uh, baseball game. Yeah. Okay. I don't think I've I've talked about maybe I mentioned it to you. I don't think I've talked about Super Mega Baseball three mm-hmm. before. Uh, maybe you had Super Mega Baseball two because I know you had one at one point. So, all right. So I've got my next one. I had to take a minute to actually look at this a little bit because if this was a stupid parody game, I was going to go on past it, but it's not. So COVID the outbreak. Um, oh this boy. Is a, well, that was my first sentiment, but this seems like it's being done very seriously. Um, it's a, a management game, strategy simulation type game, where you're in charge of managing the global response to a pandemic, specifically, I guess, COVID, uh, COVID-19, but there could be other things in the game beyond that. But this is made by the same developers who made Kursk, Um and another game that was kind of like that. So these very serious games that focus on real events and how they have affected or, and how they affect. And there's a little bit of an educational portion, kind of what we were talking about. There's like an educational portion, but there's also the gaming element to it as well. Um, I mean, they've got some other stuff too, but yeah, they've, they've got some these serious games. I don't. I, I honestly have no idea how good this looks, but the fact that it uh, appears to be an actual serious look at this instead of being like "haha, dumb memes" or whatever. Um, wait. Okay. So why did this person not recommend it? Because their first line is honestly, when I first saw this, I immediately thought, "Well, this looks like another cash grab riding on the coronavirus theme." However, the game really surprised me. It has a ton of depth, a huge amount of mechanics, very interesting balancing gameplay balance. Um. Solid strategy game, sort of a mix between Plague Inc. and a Paradox game. So, but over, they didn't. They went on to not recommend it. Interesting. I'm not going to read through the whole thing. It's very long. But yeah, I mean that was my sentiment. Like, oh god, here we go again. But it actually looks like it's a pretty serious, uh, attempting to be realistic take on something like this, which is good. 
Um, that's the end yeah. of my queue, though. That was my last game. Uh, yeah, I got a. I'm. I still have four remaining. I've had to really skip much this time around. So I got you, me, and her. A love story. A visual novel about. Uh, well, finding love in high school because that's most uh, visual novels these days. But I was looking at the visual novel database about it. So it looks like it's uh, set around uh, choosing between two uh, girls and uh, falling in love with them. But it also sounds like there's some severe angst and pain along the way. Uh, it is classified as a medium like novel, which puts it in the 10 to 30 hour range. I don't want to give too much about it because who some of the tags on here is and that's even without the spoilers but it's not a yuri game so uh the protagonist is male and choosing between two uh girls at least it looks like but there may be a hidden route who knows right right only one way to find out purchase uh, it looks like there's an enforced playing order as well so it goes through or there are some endings that are unlocked or routes that are unlocked through play. So that does kind of extend the playtime as well. So let's see. I'm just going through. That is actually kind of interesting looking. This could be either complete shit or actually decent. And it looks like it has some actually decent reviews. So I think you've, this is on your wish list. So you may have talked about it or you may have just seen it at some point. Total Tank Simulator. I don't think you've talked about it this week, so... Not this week, but that sounds familiar, like I've talked about it on the show before, but I mean, that's fine. So, kind of a low-poly war game with some strategic elements as well. Uh, looks like it's not just tanks, uh, airplanes as well, ground warfare. It is a massive physics-driven World War II battles uh, to the last man standing. Destroy everything on... Uh, a site with insane amounts of units that will behave tactically. So, yeah, uh, interesting, right? So that could get rather wacky if uh, they go that route. Uh, looks like campaigns may be a little weird with some crashing issues as well, just based on a few reviews. Uh, just double check. I'm going back to your list uh, because uh, some uh, some of these sound familiar. But I think I think this one, because you talked about Ember, I got a game called Wildfire, <laughs> right? <laughs> nice. Unbrand. Wildfire is a stealth game where everything burns. Use your elemental powers to start fires, freeze water, and move the earth to, as you outsmart super, superstitious enemies in this mischievous 2D stealth game. So, interesting, right? Yep. So, sort of... A uh, uh, Shadow of the Ninja, uh, only with uh, some Divinity of Ritual Sin thrown in as well, right? Yeah, could be. Uh, I'm, and I'm just kind of flip, going through the trailer, and that uh, it does look very much like Divinity of Ritual Sin, where yeah, they kind of think of everything, and a lot of it is just using the environment against your enemies. So that is actually very fascinating. Oh, there's Ember. And what's my last one? Okay, that is interesting. I'm going to put this on here. I want you to kind of look at it because... Yeah. Library of Runia. May you find your book in peace. Combat between guests and librarians breaks out as 
if it were on stage. Defeated guests turn into books. And the library grows onward. So a kind of a roguelite library murder simulator? Question mark? Yeah. This yeah, this is was just strange. Does it have... But, is it roguelite? Yeah. Okay. It's, it, like, the first screenshot is not English. I'm like, oh, does it support the English language? But it does. Yeah, it looks like it's kind of a roguelite, almost a, a Slay the Spire-esque, with some sort of card-building mechanic as well. Uh, yeah. By building up a book. It's just weird. In a good way. Uh, early access, $25. We're planning to update the story similar to a series of cartoons or novels. Uh, we plan to uh, receive intermediate feedback from players to improve and complete the game. Uh, officially launched in December of this year. Story's been prepared up to Chapter 3. We're planning to uh, include the game with Chapter 7. Uh, adding fo- uh, more fully voiced dialogue in Korean and add achievements to the game. So it sounds like they're more just filling out the story and taking feedback. So, all right. Uh, Official language support, Korean, English, Japanese, and simplified Chinese. So uh, with English not being the first language, that is a little troublesome if it's uh, not done uh, with a proper localization team or localization, uh, I guess, localization person, right? Uh, Yeah. From what I could tell, it looks like the English is pretty on point. So, yeah, interesting. Uh, kind of buried the lead on that one, but got a, a, an oddball at the end, huh? Yeah. And that is my cue. Sweet. Well, then that means, Rage, it's time for you to hit him with the socials. Well, I've been Caffeine Rage. Maybe someday you'll find me on YouTube again, uh, Gaming with Caffeine Rage. You can find me on Twitter, sometimes Gaming with CR. Or if you wish to be my friend on Steam, Caffeine Rage there as well. And you've been... Gaming Psychologist. You can find me on the YouTube by searching for Gaming Psychologist on Twitter at JMA4707. And if you want to be my friend on Steam, you can do so by sending a friend request to JRthur4707. And if you wish to know exactly what episode of the podcast you're coming from, the password for this week is Hooter. <laughs> Hooter. I didn't nice. have a good one for uh, from the show, so I went to my list of random words. I approve. Of course you do. So I guess that means I should uh, wrap things up. So once again, you could reach us at vglpodcast.gmail.com with your letters, voicemails, gaming-related topics, or just tweet them to us at vglpodcast. And our lovely, lovely patrons make this possible. You can find out more at patreon.com slash vglpodcast. Or you could go over to our website, vglpodcast, vglpodcast.podbean.com, which hosts the RSS feed. Links to all our stuff, or you can find us on iTunes, Google, uh, Google Play, or your podcatcher of choice if you wish to spread the love. Our intro and outro music is on the ground by Kevin McLeod, and our uh, Discovery Q music, which we didn't say to hit the music, but I'm assuming you're going to anyway, is doobly doob uh, by the same artist. You can find his work over at incomputech.com and... As always, as his lovely music starts to roll across my voice... Bye now. See you next time. Bye bye.